Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you're with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. The Buck Sexton Show. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Missed you for the last couple of days. Excited to get a chance to chat with you here in the Freedom Hut. As is our custom, we have a phone here that you can call in, or actually many phones, 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. And uh, we should definitely chat about whatever you've got on your mind. Um, we have more information now. Uh, to Well, let me, let me just give you a quick roadmap to the show before I get into that. I'm going to try to talk about a, a whole array of issues today. I really want to mix it up because I feel like there's been a understandably, but there's been a very singular focus to the news cycle in the last week or so. I'd like to get to the possibility of a slapdown to public sector unions requiring people to pay dues, whether they want to or not. Supreme Court's uh, Supreme Court heard uh, oral arguments on that earlier today. We'll discuss that. Also, some stuff on sanctuary cities, including the uh, mayor of Oakland, who is warning people about impending ice raids. You know, this this gets interesting, folks, because sometimes law enforcement will even make arrests and they'll claim obstruction of either government administration or obstruction of law enforcement uh, duties. And they've even done that. There was a case a while back where a guy was flashing his lights to warn somebody of a speed trap. Now, I think that's uh, law enforcement overreach to arrest that guy, but they did. Um, interesting to see a, in a an elected official in a, in a major city like Oakland giving people a, giving people a heads up. Hey, hey, people breaking the law. The federal government's going to come in and want to talk to some of you. Uh, so there's that. And then also the Democrat memo. We've got our buddy Andy McCarthy who will be joining on that later on in the show. I'm not opening with it or getting into it in the first hour because my predictions about it were Essentially, entirely spot on, as tends to be my uh, tends to be my habit here, uh, which is that it's there's really no new information. All the good stuff is blacked out, and what's left is talking points from Adam Schiff, partisan whining, and a repeat of what you'd see on MSNBC or or CNN on any given night with regard to FISA abuse, the targeting of the Trump administration, the targeting of those officials. Right? This is it was just Adam Schiff talking points. Um, although they do admit that they, oh yeah, there was Papadopoulos and Carter and the dossier. Those are all things that are, oh yeah, the stuff you know about that, that's that's a real thing. That uh, those names appear in the dossier. The do- I mean, those names appear rather in the memo. The dossier was in fact used for the FISA warrant. This is all very important and very troubling stuff. But we will get there in the third hour with our friend Andy McCarthy. And then end up the show with some crazy left-wing, uh, actually shutting down speech by turning off the speakers. You're going to have to stay with me for that one. We'll have some fun with that in the third hour. Um, but biggest story in the country still right now is the aftermath of a terrible shooting 
at uh, Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. And the gun control debate and discussion has been moving forward, all, moving forward despite all the uh, bad arguments that we've heard in the past. It seems this time around there, there will, in fact, be some changes. There's already been change in the state of Florida. And we need to look at what's coming right now. Uh, we also have more information, or at least more sound bites, from Sheriff Israel, Sheriff Scott Israel of Broward County, who is looking like such a disgraceful, distasteful, uh, oligonous fellow in all this. Just, just a slippery dissembling i gotta stop using all the different words but you know what i mean the guys the guys coming off like a jerk and a liar there we go buck use the good words jerk and liar that's accurate and look jake tapper had that cnn town hall which as i told you what was it was a debacle and it was just people shouting and yelling and dana lash looking at everybody saying okay let's talk about policies oh burn her she's terrible murderer you know no, let's talk about policies that will make everyone safer. Oh, burn her. I mean, it's just crazy what was going on there. I mean, see, I would say uh, CNN should be ashamed. But CNN has no shame. Come on. They're not ashamed about this. I'm sure the ratings are pretty good. I ended up watching it on replay, uh, which was a painful experience, but it was a, a real thing that I had to do. And you had Tapper, Jake Tapper over at CNN, who got the big interview which is what everybody wanted uh, to hear this weekend, which was Sheriff Scott Israel. And here is, because this goes to the whole notion of law enforcement's role in this. And I will say it, I mean, law enforcement in this case messed up big time. That's not new, you already know that, right? But we need to understand the degree, the scale, and the specifics of the mess up, because if we're going to have any kind of a serious discussion about stopping the next one or at least having a chance of stopping the next one we got to know what happened this time around right we need to be very honest we need to do an after action report and that's what we are doing here on this show what could have been different what could have been done to avoid this from a law enforcement perspective i'll get into the gun stuff later and i also want to talk about the australia comparison because i'm seeing a lot of that right now we even had some former australian pms on tv you know talking about how they think that may, maybe we should follow in their footsteps when it comes to guns. You know, Look, we all know Aussies are great people. I've, I've always wanted to go to Australia, never been, but I've met, I know lots of Australians. I love Aussies. Um, but I don't need to hear from their prime ministers on guns because, not surprisingly, they don't know what the heck they're talking about. So we'll get into that aspect of this as well. But first, on law enforcement's responsibility here, what happened? I mean, dozens and dozens of calls to the House, Nicholas Cruz, people saying that he was going to be a shooter. FBI got the most detailed tip, the most detailed information imaginable. You know, here is his name. Here's where he lives. Here's why I think he's a threat. Here are people you can talk to about this. How that does not get moved up the, the chain of command, how that's not considered a, a major issue is a problem. You see, this is, this is, I know, a tense place for some people to go, but I'm going to go there. I'm not saying that the counterintelligence division of the FBI 
has anything to do with the field office in Miami or Broward County or whichever F- specific FBI office was uh, handling this or the FBI office that took the tip, whatever it may be, right? FBI's field offices across the country. I'm not saying that, oh, well, one office was doing one thing, another office was doing another, it's zero sum. So, no, I understand they handle thousands and thousands and thousands of cases. So it wasn't a resources went into the FISA dossier, Carter Page surveillance situation, and therefore did not go. And I mean, that's a that's a nonsense argument. I understand that. Of course, I always love it as well when people who have never worked in intelligence or law enforcement get all mad at me on Twitter. Well, maybe if you understood the different field office separation from the. Thanks. Uh, Thanks. You know, women's and gender studies professor like I I got this. Okay, I don't don't really need the, the unnecessary lecture where you don't know what you're saying, and I do. Um, here's what I will say, though. There are protocols in place. There are rules, so to speak, for how much attention and how rapid the escalation should be when law enforcement is presented with different situations, right? If, for example, somebody called in an active shooter situation anywhere across the country, right? If somebody said, you know, there's an active shooting going on at, at X place, you would expect that there would be, or, or you know, an imminent active shooter situation even, you would expect there would be a rapid response of what we call ESU here in New York City, emergency services units, basically SWAT. Um, but that's what you would expect. And if that didn't happen, you'd want to know why. And if you called in a... Uh, you know, uh, a, a lost cat up a tree, although I guess that is maybe a fire department issue, right? Doesn't the fire department have whatever. Let's say let's say in your locality, that's a police matter. Hey, officer so-and-so has it. The feline has escalated the arboreal sanctuary. And yeah, but let's say that the officer has that one, right? You would expect that the officer to go help the cat in the tree. You know, I'm being a little facetious here, but you get what I'm saying. You expect that there would be a guy who or gal who would show up when they could, as they could, in no particular hurry or rush. It has to do with priority, right? It's not that one what, there's resources for one, there's no resources for the other. It's just a question of what gets attention and movement at what speed, right? Serious crime, you know, felony in progress, cops, sirens blazing. And I know that is the protocol, and the FBI has said the protocol was not followed with the active shooter with the tip about the would-be active shooter in Florida, but that still doesn't make me feel like it's uh, it's it's out of line then to say you know Carter Page still not convicted of a crime, still not accused of a crime, no evidence presented of a crime, and just you know surveillance and you know FBI and all the stuff that's going on. And with all the different tips and all the different red flags we've had with Nicholas Cruz, somehow it was not, I'm sorry, but it, it was not prioritized the way that it should have been. So, you see, that's the difference between it's, it's not a resources, it's not a zero-sum resources argument. It's a what gets people in law enforcement, in the different agencies and departments involved to move, to go, to take something seriously. And a tip about an active shooter is a much more serious, much bigger deal than some clown who's hanging out with Russians and may or may not, you know, want to help them set up some sock puppets to say mean things about Hillary. I'm that that's just the reality of the situation. People got very mad at me for saying and I wrote something, you know, I let something rip over the weekend on this one.
Um, I should stay off social media on the weekends because it's just you, you need to. I need to dial it down a little bit, but or dial it off. But that's one thing that really struck me here is that you see that we have this vast law enforcement apparatus. We have the best police in the world uh, and dealing with incredibly difficult circumstances and, and policing communities and doing it so well. I mean, you know, New York City is almost as safe as Tokyo, our largest city, not just because I'm here and I know it the best of the various law enforcement challenges, but, you know, cities, a lot of you are sitting around, you're like, yeah, Buck, well, where I live, where I'm listening to this show right now, you know, we average about, in this county, you know, one murder a year, maybe. And it's generally a domestic dispute gone wrong, gone wrong, right? I mean, there's, we are, we are overall a very, very safe country. In fact, once you start taking drug-related violent crime out of the situation, which means that unless you, generally speaking, people I know get hit in the crossfire and the other... But unless you are around that in one way or another, um, it's unlikely to uh, affect you. Um, we are actually a very, very safe country, and our law enforcement does an incredible job. Go spend some time in Mexico. Talk to some journalists there or, or just average everyday Mexicans about what they think of their police and how their police are doing. And it's just known that in, some, in there are whole counties or states, they would call them, but right there are whole states where you can't trust the local police. You can only trust the federal police, the federalists. You can't trust the local police. So we have a, a debt of gratitude to law enforcement in this country day in and day out. With that said, Sheriff Israel and his entire sheriff's department and the folks that showed up uh, from his department on the scene immediately, including that one officer, Peterson, who did not go in, are a disgrace to the profession. A disgrace to the profession. And I, I mentioned Jake Tapper before. He, he at least asked the relevant questions here. Do you think that if the Broward Sheriff's Office had done things differently, this shooting might not have happened? Hey, listen, if ifs and buts were candy and nuts, uh, you know, uh, O.J. Simpson would still be in the record books. I don't know what that means. There's 17 dead people and there's a, a whole long list of things your department could have done differently. How could... I Listen, uh, that's what, that's what af uh, after action reports are. That's for lessons learned reports are for. Is this guy Israel, is, is he an imbecile? If, if ifs and buts were candy and nuts, what the heck is he talking about? This guy's in charge of one of the largest sheriff's departments in the country? You got to be kidding me. The only way this is possible. Oh, that's right. He's elected. Oh, he's a politician. Oh, okay. Oh, he's in Debbie Wasserman Schultz's district. Oh, Oh, and there's some other stories about this district that have been bubbling up over the weekend. There's some other information about this that we should all know. Uh, give us a better sense of how was it possible that there could be such incompetence and such cowardice in a sheriff's department in a major uh, county in Florida. We'll get into all that and much more. 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. We'll be right back. Are you really not taking any responsibility for the multiple red flags that were brought to the attention of the Broward Sheriff's Office about this shooter before the incident? Jake, I could only take responsibility for what I knew about. I exercise my, my due diligence. I've given amazing leadership to this agency. Amazing leadership? Uh, I've worked... 
Yes, Jake, uh, you don't uh, measure uh, a person's leadership by a deputy not going into a, these deputies received the training they needed. Maybe you measure somebody's leadership by whether or not they protect the community. Maybe. Look at Jake Tapper. I think that he he knew that he had to, he had to come out swinging after that town hall fiasco, or yeah, the town hall thing, whatever they called it. Um, but he he did a good job here. I I I call it like I see it, and I think that uh, Tapper pushed back in this interview. Amazing leadership, you know my my leadership has been amazing. This guy Scott Israel, he's ama- What is amazing is how quickly he'll throw anybody else. Uh, under the bus, there's that, right? So you know what this guy, you don't have to worry about him getting tripped up in ethical questions because his first move is going to be whatever's best for Sheriff Israel. That's that's how he's going to roll. That's how he's going to do things. As I said, I'm, I'm the sheriff. My name's on the door. The people responsible are the ones who took the calls and didn't follow up on them, as it was with the FBI, uh, as it was with with any with any person. Leaders cannot. Leaders are responsible for the agency, but leaders are not expo- are responsible for a person. Uh, I gave him a gun. I gave him a badge. I gave him the training. If he didn't have the heart to go in, that's not my responsibility. Oh, I I I te- I have to disagree, Sheriff Israel. You know, if he's like a dumb coward and like I don't do nothing about it, you know, I'm gonna keep my job, my my perks, and my big pension, and that's how we're gonna do it. Uh, I disagree with Sheriff Israel here, um, and I think that many of you listening who are current or former military be saying, "Oh yeah, if I'm a, if I'm the officer and one of one of my men does something terrible under my command, uh, I'm in trouble." Actually, in fact, I I had a friend uh, many years ago who. In, in combat in Iraq was uh, wrongfully at one point associated with conduct that had nothing to do with him, but it was men under his command. And he was in some real legal jeopardy for a short while there until it was all cleared up. But he, no one ever thought he had done anything wrong. He just was the officer. And it was in, an, it was in combat. It was in a, an intense firefight. Uh, he was a, a, a buddy of mine. I remember we had a long talk. We spent a whole night just drinking beers back when I used to be able to drink beer. And he, he told me about everything. And that was after the the legal jeopardy had passed. But that's how it is in the military. And law enforcement, guess, you know, pardon the phrase, where does the buck stop? Apparently it doesn't stop with Sheriff Israel. That, that much he's clear about. You know, he's keeping his job. He's not stepping down. He's not resigning. I think quite clearly Sheriff Scott Israel should resign. If there is to be any accountability for this situation, it should be with, first and foremost, by many, many miles, many orders of magnitude, the shooter. Uh, Even though the press likes to pretend that number two on that list is the NRA, and this has led down to some corporate backlash that we'll get into in a moment, I think number two on the list should be the guy who stood outside, didn't do anything, and number three should be Sheriff Israel himself. That's how I see it. What do you think? We'll be right back. You know, I got to watch some deputy sheriffs performing this weekend. They weren't exactly uh, Medal of Honor winners. All right. The way they performed was, frankly, disgusting. They were listening to what was going on. The one in particular, he was then, he was early. Then you had three others. You know, I really believe, you don't know until you test it, but I think I, I really believe I'd run in there even if I didn't have a weapon. And I think most of the people in this room would have done that, too. 
because I know most of you. But the way they performed was was really a disgrace. I got to agree with the president and I've agreed with them all along. And I've seen a lot of people uh, who have come forward who are current or former law enforcement, current or former military people who have run toward the gunfire. I was going to say before, and in some cases, many, many, many times before. Those of you listening know who you are. And just saying that, you know, this is, this is completely unacceptable. The government doesn't allow me, right? In New York City, New York State even as well, doesn't allow me to carry around a firearm. I've had enough weapons training in my day that anyone around me would be safer from the prospect of violent crime if I were armed, but I'm not allowed to be armed here. And I live in a state that that's not going to change anytime soon, right? So I I can't walk around with a firearm on my hip. And part of the, the contract here, if you will, is that the government will provide people, sworn law enforcement officers, who will risk themselves to save the lives of those of us who are not allowed to carry. And I know in some places you are allowed to carry, it's different, but it's, it's particularly, feels particularly egregious, you know, when you start to think about what this would mean nationwide and across the country. Oh, now, oh, well, you know, we can't, we can't expect law enforcement to, to put themselves at risk. They're putting themselves at risk every day. Put themselves at risk during traffic stops when they go into domestic uh, domestic disputes. I think actually just recently an officer was killed in Baltimore, Maryland. He was off duty. It was just intervening in a domestic dispute, which is a way of saying, you know, I think a husband and wife or a girlfriend and boyfriend were fighting. He got killed. So law enforcement is taking risks all the time. Why would we not in- enforce that expectation on people who are sworn law enforcement, who are armed in the circumstances where they have the most obligation the most clear obligation to protect life at a school shooting what could be more obvious and more obvious and uh, cut and dry than that i was very surprised at some of the pushback that i was initially hearing over this uh, but i think it is that has uh, died down a bit and so now we can just i i wanted to spend some time with you on this law enforcement's failures here are being pushed aside by the left because the, the narrative has to be about gun control, not about law enforcement failed at every level, at every opportunity in the Stoneman Douglas shooting. And they did. They failed at, at every single juncture, at every opportunity. But also note, and, and others have been pointing this out, it is strange to me. I, I Look, I don't do the conspiracy thing here. You guys all know that. And gals, I don't mind the microaggression. Um, but I don't do the thing where I just come up with some conspiracy that I think will get people, ooh, I want to hear more about this crazy thing this guy is saying, right? Because I try to give you uh, objective truth as much as possible all the time. Um, But it is hard not to notice that in the Las Vegas shooting, which killed a, a few dozen more people and hit 500 people, I believe, wounded all in how quickly the media moved on from that i'm not saying there's a conspiracy i'm just saying it is strange and perhaps it's because what's been so important to the media this time around 
is that they have young people that they are pushing forward. They're pushing them forward to be the kind of official spokespersons, if you will, of gun control. And they are victims. There are those who had been uh, in the past. There are those who had been at the at the shooting. Right. So that's one difference here. So that may be it. It's just that this time around, there's a more effective mechanism for making the argument about gun control, which is you have traumatized kids pushed forward by the media really being used as political props. I'm sorry, but that is what is happening because the kids that want to say thank you to the first responders who did risk themselves, who did run in, who did save lives. And, and you know, I, and I do believe that armed teachers are a good idea. They're, they're getting way less play. There are a few favorites. The media has picked some favorites here, some spokespersons for the group. Hashtag never again. And that is a distinct change between what we are seeing here and what we have seen, what we saw with Las Vegas, where we still don't know the motive. And there's and law enforcement just flat out said a bunch of stuff right after that that was not true. Um, isn't it amazing to see in the case of Florida, though, the Democrats who are so quick to usually pick a very small incident or a very specific incident, I should say, not a small incident, scratch that from a very specific incident, though, of local law enforcement in one place and extrapolate from that a problem with law enforcement across the whole country. Oh, law enforcement. You see what this one cop did? Oh, law enforcement's so racist. See what this one cop said in these text messages? Oh, law enforcement's all racist, including non-white law enforcement. Right? They'll say that they're part of the racist system, too, which is, I mean, I, I would find just I find offensive on many levels. Right. But in Florida, though, with the bumbling and the, the, the mess ups and the mis, missteps and all the stuff that we've seen. The media is no interest in talking really about uh, the takeaways from the law enforcement failures. They have to report on them, although I will know they held it. I don't care what anybody says. They held that there were four deputies on the scene until Friday, and they told us at 6 p.m. Friday. That was held. People had that information. Now, was it just the sheriff's department that had it, or was it with other people? But it was held. It was also held till after the town hall that there was a sheriff's deputy on the scene who was outside, who's now saying, oh, he didn't know. It's just so obvious, man. I, I've seen the the uh, transcript of him trying to defend his actions here or his inactions, and it, it just couldn't be any more uh, obvious to me what's going on. He's like, oh, I didn't know if the gunfire was inside or outside. So I took a defensive position outside because that's what we're trained to do. Trying very hard to come up with it. You know, hey, I'd have a few days here to think this one over. And look, if, if we have a uh, a sheriff's deputy on the scene who's got a, a firearm who doesn't know the difference between gunfire from inside a building and gunfire that is outside of a building i think we got a whole separate set of problems um you're gonna tell me he has, has no ability to, to differentiate that i mean does he have a here what's what are we to make of this um anyway that's that's a non-starter i i, I wanted to get into some of the uh some of the policies here i, I will say i was a little the gun control policies that are being Forward. I was a little surprised uh, that uh, the president said this today. I'm wondering if you all have thoughts on it. Don't worry about the NRA. They're on our side. You guys, half of you are so afraid of the NRA. There's nothing to be afraid of. 
And you know what? If they're not with you, we have to fight them every once in a while. That's okay. They're doing what they think is right. I will tell you, they are doing what they think is right. But sometimes we're going to have to be very tough and we're going to have to fight them. I don't see the place where there's any need to fight the NRA on this issue. I don't see where that the NRA is. uh, And it's particularly clear for me, as many of you know, I used to work with Dana Lash, who's the NRA's spokesperson. When I was at the Blaze, I know Dana well. I've worked with Dana over the years, countless hours now. And she's out there saying on behalf of the NRA, yeah, we should do a better job with background checks, information from the states, get to the federal level. Yeah. And yeah, you know, we should consider mental health legislation that might be, you know, the ways we can get mental health, the mental health system to be able to deal with this and an imminent threat. Um, I've been proposing or, or proposing uh, trying to support the idea of temporary restraining orders for uh, people that are believed to be imminent violent offenders with with uh, guns. We've had David French on to talk about it. I think that's also a very worthwhile proposal. I haven't heard the NRA say boo hoo to that. So what do we have to fight the NRA? Raising the age limit? I mean, come on. Raising the age limit is penalizing many millions of people for their Second Amendment rights, and it is not going to do anything to stop a determined school shooter. Um, But I suppose that's the one place maybe where there's some disconnect between the White House and the NRA on this. You know, at the age limit's 21, I'm just, I'm going to be the one who says it right now. They, they, if they make the age limit 21 for semi-autos, not long before they're going to say, you know, maybe it should be like renting a car. Maybe it should be like 25 where you can get a semi-auto. Let's, let's make it, and then there'll be another shooting. Let's make it 30. As long as the focus is on the firearm and not the problems around it and problems surrounding it and law enforcement's obligation to at least have some semblance of competence in dealing with the issue, we will not get very far with lessening the probability of a mass shooting event like this. Um, all right, well, let's take some calls on the flip side of this break. I want to also talk about the Australia model. I think we actually had a caller from Australia a minute ago who wanted to talk about that specifically. So uh, I saw you drop off. If the uh, Hopefully the charge, there's no like charges for calling in from Australia. Um but we'll get into all this and more. 844-900-2825. We got a lot of lines lit. We have a spot, I think, open. So we got room for one more if you want to jump in the conversation. And the next hour, we'll talk more about uh, the gun control policies, maybe some Democrat memo stuff. Oh, public sector unions. We're going to beat up on some public sector unions. That's going to be fun. Get ready for that. If you work for like the you know teachers unions or something, might not be your favorite segment, but maybe you'll like it. You know, maybe you're, maybe you're like the Ron Swanson of the teachers union and hope the whole thing comes crumbling down. We'll get into that and more coming up. Stay with me. Welcome back, team. I know we've got a lot of lines lit. People have, everyone's got a lot to say on this issue, as you should. So let's get to it. Joy in Mississippi. Hey, Joy. Hi, Buck. Hello. I have a simple question. Yes, ma'am. Uh, why is it when a drunk driver runs into people... It's the driver's fault, and when hijackers fly a plane in the World Trade Center, it's the hijacker's fault. Uh, When a cop shoots an unarmed black man in the back, it's the cop's fault. But when some jerk shoots up a school, it's the gun's fault. Yeah, it's a very good question, and I think we know the answer is because of the gun has— guns have become a cultural and political symbol 
much more than a, a, a tool that can be used for good or used for evil, right? In the, in the eyes of the left, guns are symbolic of much more. They're symbolic of state power or really the refusal to completely submit to state power, right? Guns are a little act of personal revolution, each one of us willing to say there are lines you cannot cross. Uh, and for statists and for progressives, that's a that's just crazy thinking, Joy. That's unacceptable. Yes. Could I add one thing? Yes, You ma'am. asked about Trump's comments to sure. the NRA. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a quote by Benjamin Franklin in 1759 that said, uh, they that can give up essential liberty to obtain a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty or safety. And that's something people should keep in mind. I agree. Joy, thank you very much for the call. Appreciate it. Charlie in Ocean City, Maryland. Hey, Charlie. Hey, good evening, Buck. Glad to talk to you. You too. Yeah, hey, on this uh, Sheriff Israel, I think he's uh, he's completely missed everything. Uh, he's a lefty. We know that. Four of his deputies did not perform. And he had to sign off on their training. He had to put the stamp of approval on their training. So he's accountable. Then then you go to these kids, and I'm a grandfather of 10, and most of them are teenagers. And when they do something wrong, I confront them with it. When I go visit them, they love to sit down and talk to me. So these kids bullied this other boy beyond belief, and I don't hear any reports about that. Hmm. Why is that? Well, I, you know, I, I can't give you much of a profile of his interactions with the other students because, as you're saying, I think it's true. I, I haven't read that much about that. Uh, I think that people would be very hesitant to... You know, nobody wants to in any way excuse or downplay or try to mitigate the evil that Nicholas Cruz committed that day. And I think for some it might feel like uh, a distraction from the real responsible party here to say that there were others who were bullying him. But he was clearly a kid that had problems and I'm sure had all kinds of issues with his fellow students. And we've seen some reporting about that. Um, but, Charlie, you know, there are a lot of kids who are bullied who don't do thank thank heavens, don't do what this guy did. So bullying is not a, uh, as I know you know, bullying is not an excuse. I haven't seen much of a, uh, much reporting on it, though, so I'd be curious to see. Some of these kids, though, and thank you for calling in, Charlie, some of these uh, trench coat mafia types, which if you remember, the the Columbine shooters were in this group called the trench coat mafia, and there was a term that people in the late 90s and early 2000s people would use. Some of these, they actually have a, when you go and you read about them and uh, there's a a separation sure and and maybe some signs of uh, some signs of sociopathy or even psychopathy being a psychopath although some a, a lot of school shooters were able to function pretty or at least come across as pretty normal when they wanted to right beforehand um, but these kids also separate themselves and, and de- develop an aggressive arrogance as part of the profile. You know, they become disdainful. Now, you could say that's just a defense mechanism to being rejected by their peers. May ver- that may very well be the case. Uh, but they become aggressive, arrogant, and disdainful of their peers and choose to separate themselves and choose to look down on and, and want 
in the case of the Columbine kids, it was well known. I mean, they wanted to they there was a want to get even with the with the popular kids aspect of that heinous crime. Uh, Mark in North Carolina, we got a little time here. Mark wanted to get you in. How much is a little time? Uh, <laughs> Mark, we got about a minute and thirty seconds. All right, I'll which is which is a lifetime on radio, my friend. So go ahead. Yes, yes. I've I've got a little thing and a big thing. Which would you rather have? Let's let's give me the little thing. Okay. We are told that this guy, the shooter, actually arrived at school with an Uber driver. Okay. And, of course, he owns 10 guns and ammunition and Lord knows everything else that he had at his house. But apparently this kid could never afford a car, which is also kind of odd. He's 19. and I don't know what you do in the United States if you're 19 without a car. Well, he actually got a $25,000 uh, check, I think, from the insurance after his mother passed away. And he used that, from what I read, to uh, buy some of his firearms. But anyway, go ahead. Twenty-five grand is enough money to get a car, as you know. You can't get a car for twenty-five thousand these days. But anyway, there's a report uh, from one of the teachers who actually saw him and was shot in the arm. The teacher was, and she said that she saw the man in full metal garb with a helmet, face mask, bulletproof armor, shooting a rifle she'd never seen before. Okay, then if you go back to the official timeline from the Broward County Sheriff. He was dropped off at 2.19, and at 2.21.33, he's firing in the halls. Mark, I'm going to have to revisit this, my friend. I'm sorry. We actually are at time. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Hour two has already gotten going. Hour two is here. We have much, much to discuss. And I would note that uh, over the weekend, the Sunday shows, the weekend shows, they try to set the political tone, the conversation for the week. And as we knew it was going to be all about gun control. I'm going to talk about the Australia problem in just a moment here. And I, I, will, I will not, or not the Australia problem, the Australia uh, card, which is often played here. Oh, we should be like Australia. Except Australia didn't work out the way they said it would. They're lying about it, and we could never do it here even if we wanted to. But put that on hold for just a moment. First. Oh, and also the public sector union thing. We're going to take them to task in a few minutes. But first here, there's something that's been going on here. I've been mentioning to you that in the gun control vanguard, you have children who are handpicked by the media, teenagers, really. To call them children is a little, you know, I think we should have some, we be more precise in the terminology here, right? 18 plus, you're an adult. You're not a teenager when you're 18, you're an adult, okay? I mean, technically you're a teenager, but a lot of things are technical. Um if you're, you know, 16, 17, you know, you're you're an adolescent, you're a young adult, whatever. To call them children is, I think, a little, I'll be honest with you, I think that's a little bit, that's a little disparaging. It's a little condescending. Right? They're not 10, they're not 8. Uh, but you have these young people, there you go, these young people who are out there making the case. And some of them are very much pro-gun control. Some of them are not. Some of them want to talk about law enforcement and law, and, and the job they did and other issues here. But there's one in particular, this young man named uh, uh, Hogg. David Hogg, is that right? I think it's David Hogg, yeah. And he, he has every right to say what he's saying, just as I have every right to say that I disagree with him. But it's more than just saying that he's wrong on the facts and ignorant of the Second Amendment and gun control, which he is. This guy, with the media as enablers, they are really handlers and enablers for some of these 
hashtag never again uh, teenagers who are pushing this gun control narrative and who now, you know, I think Hogg has like 300,000 Twitter followers now, right? I mean, they're, they're becoming, look, let's be honest, they're becoming political celebrities in this process. That is what is happening here. Um, but they, they are also to be held to account for their words, right? Just because you have suffered a, uh, a very traumatic situation, I would note that in the case of Hogg, I don't, I don't believe he was... Uh, and I, I could be wrong here. I don't, I don't believe he was wounded, although he's gone through the trauma of losing uh, classmates and friends and teachers. Um, but there are limits to what we can excuse based upon age and based upon our desire to be uh, understanding of what some of these young people are going through, even though they're now making themselves public figures and going uh, on national television, and I think we've crossed some of those limits here. Play the clip, please. She wants Congress to take action and says that they won't. Are you kidding me? She owns these congressmen. She can get them to do things. It's just she doesn't care about these children's lives. Uh, that is a slander. That's uh, not okay to say. He was speaking about Dana Lash, the uh, NRA spokeswoman and also a former colleague and friend of mine. Um, that's not okay to say. It's not true. And it's a gross thing to say, and it's not something that should be, I, I don't care what this kid has been through or what, what his, uh, you're not allowed to accuse people of terrible things with no evidence just because you don't like them or their political positions. And you're seeing this now where they're saying, oh, how, how dare you? Look what he's been through. It's, I'm not, no one's commenting one way or the other on the, the trauma of, being a student at a school that's just suffered this mass casualty incident, I'm going to comment on the fact that his knowledge of gun control and gun control policies is almost zero. And more importantly to me, he's going around and saying things about people that are disparaging, that are false, that are defamatory. And that's not okay. You, you don't just get to do that. And this is the danger of using victims as political tools, which Democrats have been doing openly and shamelessly for as long as I've been alive, right? This is one of their favorite things to do. Find someone who has suffered a tragedy, put them forward, and then assume that they are inoculated from any criticism or any pushback of any kind. And with, uh, with Hogg there saying that, you know, Dana, she doesn't care about, uh, first of all, saying that she owns Congress. I mean, look, Dana's an influential lady and everything, but give me a break. She doesn't own, con- <laughs> she doesn't own Congress. She doesn't own members of Congress. Uh, it's just a, that's a foolish thing to say. And then to say she doesn't care about dead kids is an unfair thing to say. It's wrong. And anchors should, if they were going to be journalists, say, well, hold on a second, Mr. Hogg. You know, that's, do you have any evidence for that? That's, that's going too far. You know, that's just using a national platform to smear someone. And I, I can tell you this, they, you know, they wouldn't allow conser- they wouldn't allow a conservative point of view to uh, they wouldn't allow a conservative victim to go on TV and just slander somebody. You know, they wouldn't allow someone to go on TV and say, you know, Nancy Pelosi doesn't care about dead children. Right? And, and they shouldn't unless there's a real reason for her saying that. I mean, if they're talking about Nancy Pelosi's support for Planned Parenthood, well, then, yes, in fact, actually, Nancy Pelosi doesn't really care about dead children. But that's. A different discussion and that's completely that's an argument i'm willing to have with anybody it's not just nancy pelosi either but i will get very much uh separated from the issue at hand if i don't go back to this gun control discussion that we are having right now so 
the Australia case. I want to talk to you about this. We will get into uh, the Australia situation uh, because this is what's used as the the favorite talking point now for C. All the stuff that we've been discussing, all the different policy proposals that either the NRA is okay with or Republicans are putting forward, or all that is uh, not really what the left wants. What the left wants is something more like Australia. In fact, what the left really wants is something more like Japan, where there truly are almost, I mean, not no guns, but very, very, very few guns in private hands. Um, but they stay away from Japan for a whole bunch of reasons. There are historical reasons why comparing the U.S. to Japan and, and the Second Amendment uh, would be less of a uh, less of a compelling sell, I think, for them. A whole, you know, allied with Nazi Germany thing and tyranny and imperialism and everything else. And the resistance against tyranny from uh, people who are armed is something you can have a discussion about in the context of the Second World War pretty easily. Um, but back to Australia, which is a much, uh, there's a reason they use Australia. It's a society that reminds a lot of Americans very much of our own. You know, we speak the same language, shared uh, shared cultural traditions. England was our, you know, our, our, our granddaddy. And the Australia model does not work the way they say it does, and it would not work for us. And I will, I will explain why after the break. And, th- and then I think we'll move on to some uh, talk about public sector unions, because I don't want to skip that. That is, it's kind of like redistricting in that you bring it up and people are like, no, I want to hear more about Russia collusion or like, you know, whatever. Other things that get much more attention in the conservative media world. Uh, but they are things that, that actually do matter a lot. Redistricting matters to who's going to run the country. And public sector unions in much the same way and their power also matters. I think they gave $100 million in the last election cycle to candidates. Public sector. So... Employees of the state are donating over $100 million to campaigns of people who are going to run the state. What could go wrong? Obviously, a lot of things. So, uh, Australia, public sector unions, and more. Democrat FISA memo, by the way, which is not that exciting. Unless I would have opened the show with it, but we've got some some, some worthwhile stuff to to talk about on that. Um, that's all coming up, so we got our show that's ready to rock and roll. Stay with me. One of the things that people don't talk about, a lot of these schools, Sandy Hook had an all-female faculty, from principal to teachers. And for a woman, where are you going to hide that gun during the day? You can't put it in your desk drawer. Somebody might steal it and you can't get to it. You're not going to have it in a safe in the principal's office. You can't get to it. On your person, hiding it. If you wear a dress, if you wear a skirt, are you going to have to wear a jacket every day with a belt and a holster the way a detective, mm-hmm. you know, on duty would do? Um, it's it's not a real practical solution. Uh, if this guy, Tom Fuentes, over at CNN, who's uh, used to be in the FBI, who's just, I don't know, this is analysis apparently, because there are a lot of women in different schools then it's impractical for some teachers, one teacher, five teachers, who knows how many, depends on the size of school, to conceal carry because women who are wearing, who wear, you know, a skirt can't conceal carry? This Is he really not familiar with how this stuff works? He's a career FBI official. I, I will say this. Uh, it's important to remember that government is, think of government, especially these government bureaucracies, true of the CIA, true of the FBI, true of all these large bureaucracies. 
think of it like a state, like a state school, right? Just your your average state school. It's a very large state school, though. You know, with tens of thousands of students, there are brilliant, amazing people there. There are also morons. And as we see this uh, now revolving door, it seems, people that work in, and, you know, look, I'm a, I was a part of it, right, of uh, people that work in government, go to media, go back to government, go to media. Just understand that just because you worked for a place for, just because someone worked for a place for a long time that has a, you know, a, a robust history, right, just because somebody went to a reputable state school doesn't mean they're not a moron. I'm going to tell you this. And so in this case, state schools, think of it like CIA, FBI, DOJ, all this stuff. Um, there are plenty of very, very unimpressive dumb people at all of those places. I'm, and I know. I'm not guessing. I'm not theorizing. I know. And there are also incredibly brilliant people. People know way more about a whole lot of things than, than, than me or anybody else I know in media, right? So it runs the gamut. I just feel though that a lot of us have this impression of, well, a career law enforcement. This guy's career law enforcement. He must really you know, know his stuff. Well, maybe. Some of them do. Some of them don't. And uh, Fuentes was actually, I'll tell you a quick little, little side note here. Fuentes, I remember, was one of the people who, when I was at CNN, and you will recall the redactions of the Pulse nightclub shooters transcript. And I'm on air and Fuentes is on air. We're doing, you know, our analysis. I'm, you know, former analyst, CIA analyst, Buck Sexton. And he's like, senior FBI, like, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he's taking the position that the redactions in that transcript were not, remember, this was Obama administration stuff, were not about political correctness, were not mandated from the top. Nobody at DOJ even knew about it, that they were going to release redacted phone transcripts from the Pulse nightclub shooters call and that it had nothing to do with politics and that this was just a call made by the by the FBI field agents that were there. And I'm like, dude, are, are you saying it because the people paying you want you to or are you are you not smart? It's one or the other. I spoke to other FBI folks who are like, yeah, including people still in the FBI, uh, who are like, uh, yeah, no, that's not how it goes. You know, something at that level wouldn't just be something that an FBI guy did. Yeah, I'm just going to redact. I remember what they were redacting. I pledge allegiance to redacted. And 99% of America is like, yeah, ISIS. I, I'm doing this in the name of blank. 99% of America Allah, right? I mean, we, we, they were redacting things that everybody knew. And then they changed the decision. They went back on it. But I remember Fuentes was giving me a, argh, giving me a hard time. Oh, it's decision being made by the people in the field. There's no politicization here. It's, it's not, the DOJ wouldn't even know. Loretta Lynch wouldn't even know about this. Wouldn't even know. Yeah, no, nothing to do with it. Oh, really? Really, Fuentes? Why don't you explain to me how women can't conceal carry if they wear a skirt? You dummy. Uh, okay, where was I? Oh gosh, Australia, gun control in Australia. Um, I thought one thing is one of the sad things about punditry is that when you're on air and you say things and you're right, they never bring you back. And they're like, oh, by the way, when we were piling on you and saying you were wrong and you were a hundred percent right, we just wanted to apologize for being so weird and nasty to you on air during that. Because that actually that would have been great. Because I would have been on CNN all the time. They're like, wow, Buck, you were right. How'd you know? Oh, that thing, when you said it was a jihadist terrorist, you were right. How'd you know? You know, that would have been a fun recurring segment, but you know, they, don't, they don't do that. Said, How dare you? We found this. We found this person who 
was the assistant deputy undersecretary of something or other who worked for Loretta Lynch for a few months. And, and he says, you know, oh, my. Um, OK, so Australia, here's what you need to know. Here's 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 the short version, my friends. Or maybe I should give you the long version. No, I'll give you the short version. Uh, there are two ways to look at the gun control model of Australia. One is on the question of uh, efficacy or ef- effectiveness, right? Did it did it achieve the desired purpose in Australia? And the other is, could we do it here? Is it realistic? So let me start with what Australia's gun control uh, policy is, was, and what people say about it, and then what the reality is. So they had a mass shooting uh, in Tasmania at a resort. Uh, I think over 30 people killed. I forget now. It was back in the 90s, 96, 97. And they instituted a mandatory gun buyback program, which is a gentle way of saying confiscation with com- confiscation um, with compensation. That's what that is. It's confiscation with compensation, gun buyback. But they're saying, give me your weapon. I'll give you 100 bucks or 200 bucks or whatever it is, whatever the going rate is. They did that with about a million firearms, and the murder rate went down, and they haven't had another mass shooting since. Okay. Now, people point to this. They say, see, Australia did it. We can do it, too. That's just complete nonsense. Let me just start with what really happened in Australia. Australia's crime rate, to begin with, was very low. Australia's rate of mass shootings, to begin with, was basically non-existent. That's why this shocked the country so much, right? They had this one big mass shooting, but they hadn't had one before it for years, maybe even decades. So they had one incident. And then they assumed, well, we didn't have another one for a long time after it. There must be some correlation, but there's not enough of a data set. It's not like they were having three or four uh, mass shootings like this, and then they did this buyback program and it stopped. No, they just they didn't have any mass shootings. They had one. They had a buyback program, and they didn't have any mass shootings after it. And they say, well, see, we solved it. But no, that's not... That's not actually addressing whether or not it worked. That's just much more to do with Australia and how many mass shootings it has. Um, They also point to it, though, for violent crime. And this is another place where if you look at the trend, the trend line for violent crime in Australia, which was already very low, uh, was going down, going down, going down in the 80s and the 90s, trending down each year. And you're only talking about, I think, a few hundred homicides max in the country the country okay so you're talking about a very small sample set to begin with in australia and then they institute this gun buyback program and guess what it actually kind of trended up a little bit for a year or two after that in terms of uh violent crime and homicide. but it just continued its its downward uh, decline and now australia is at a point with uh you know about one in a hundred thousand a murder, a murder rate of one in a hundred thousand, I think, something like that. I mean, it's it's tiny, tiny. Okay, so there's no way to look at this and say that the gun buyback program did anything. And here's the part that they really don't tell you is that in fact, gun ownership currently in Australia, when it's at its lowest violent crime rate in I don't know fifty years or something, and probably since they were keeping records of it. And Australia is very very safe, so good job Australians. Uh, the the ownership of guns is actually greater than it was when they did the buyback program. So they've even got more guns in circulation now in private hands. They did then because of some changes in the laws and people actually got firearms. And So it can't be that less guns equals less crime because there are more guns now and less crime. 
And it can't be that less guns equal less crime because the crime rate went down at about the same what you would or the same uh, trend that you would expect, even if they didn't do a buyback program. It was already happening. So there's nothing to point to here and say, oh, yeah. And, and also note that there's some European countries, Belgium, France, uh, you know, Holland, Germany, uh, that have very restrictive gun laws. Actually, Belgium doesn't really have very restrictive, but that's let's consider that an outlier. The Netherlands, Germany, France, very restrictive gun laws, and they've still had mass shootings nonetheless. And I haven't even gotten into the part of this where we talk about how in the U.S. you've got not a couple million guns, 300 million plus guns. And I haven't even gotten into the discussion about the Second Amendment and its role in our civic life and in our founding and as part of our culture and our political heritage and the natural law reasons for protection of the self as well as a protection against tyranny the australia model could never work here and it didn't even work the way they say it did in australia that's what you need to know about that we'll be right back well team i've got some very significant legal cases to talk to you about i mean the kind of stuff that affects your community, wherever you are across the country, certainly affects national level politics um, and so matters to all of us. But I am not a lawyer and I do not play one on radio, but I do know a lot of stuff about some things, including reading uh, Supreme Court cases and knowing about how all the, the ins and outs goes. You know, there was a time when you could actually become a lawyer, true story, without going to law school. If you passed the bar exam, many states allowed you, uh, um, yeah, many states would allow you. Uh, to practice law in that state without having to go to law school. But now law school is like a cartel, a three-year, $180,000-plus cartel, and you have to just accept it. I did not. Maybe I should have, but I didn't. Uh, But before I get to that, Brian in Ohio wants to speak about the Australia model for a second. Brian, go ahead. Well, hey, Buck. Uh, First of all, that last guy clip you had on, that was probably one of the most sexist things I've ever heard in the first place, the way they don't scream about it. Isn't that that crazy, by the way? That guy's on CNN. He's like career Mr. Law Enforcement analyst guy. He's like, like, yeah, women wear skirts. They can't carry guns. I'm like, wow. (laughs) Yeah, I've seen a lot of very flattering ladies, uh, you know, wear flattering clothing, and they are packing, and you would know a moment about it. So, yeah. I had, by the way, I, I had a buddy who was a who was a, a world class firearms expert who always told me that he was of all the different ways to draw, he was faster out of any time that he was faster out of a uh, a fanny pack holster than anything else. Well, yeah, well, any more these days, if you see somebody wearing a fanny pack, uh, you know they're carrying. So that's just the way it is. Uh, because, you know, or maybe they're just like retro and it's, you know, they want to go with more of an 80s vibe. But, you know, who knows? <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, well, on to Australia real quick. Like, uh, you know, there's three points here. Uh, Australia, one is its population. The other one is its immigration. Yeah. Population of 20 million instead of the U.S., which has 320 million. That's another I wanted to get there. And you're right to remind yeah. me of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you look at it that right now, I did this in the numbers the other day in a conversation like this. And the population of the U.S. is 1,350% greater than Australia. So if you assume that mental health uh, illness is linear, that means the U.S. is 1,350% more likely to have an issue. Now, you add in our various uh, degradation of the family, uh, you're looking at other electronic influences, Hollywood influences, and so forth. I would bet it's more like we're 3,000% more likely to have 
a violent incident, uh, just regarding population. Um, also, they have a very strict immigration policy. They don't allow people in from countries uh, that have a lot of violence in the country without just completely uh, a complete uh, immigration check. Uh, they're very strict on their immigration. Yeah, and, uh, and, and Brian, can I just add into this? I mean, everything, everything you're saying is, is correct. I just want to yeah. add in that, can you imagine if for some, let's just say, and Trump's not going to do this and the Congress is not going to do this, but let's just say they said, you know what? Yeah, we've just decided that uh, we, your elected representatives, are going to gut the Second Amendment and pass a ban on all semi-automatic firearms in the United States, which people have been talking about, right? Rubio got got booed when he said that that was uh, impossible or or unlikely or whatever at the CNN town hall. If they did that, all they would do is make tens of millions of Americans criminals by fiat, uh, never mind the whole Second Amendment violation, because people just aren't going to give up their guns. And then what are you going to do? I mean, I, I've talked about this in, in California. I mean, not California. In Connecticut alone, there are, I think it's around 100,000 people that they think have what are now banned semi-automatic rifles in the state of in Connecticut. But, you know, they're not like going and kicking indoors and going after them because, one, they don't have the resources, and two, they realize none of those people are actually a threat. Exactly. And, you know, the other, the other side of the coin is just because somebody suffers from hopophobia, uh, which is the fear of guns, uh, you know, that too in itself is a mental illness that needs to have therapy in order to have a complete and healthy life. Uh, yeah, so, uh, well, you know, so, look, but yeah, Australia is not going to work here. Uh, thank you for calling in, Brian from Ohio. Good to talk to you. Australia thing, it, it's just they throw that in there because they, you know, they want to say, well, we do this in other countries. And no, sorry. Fun fact about Australia, I think it got more, a greater inflow of millionaires immigrated to Australia than any other country in the world last year. I think that's, I think that's true. And I think the greatest number left France, where they now have a very high millionaire's tax. It's almost like people don't like it when the government takes too much of their money. Um, or they just also like, really like kangaroos and the Great Barrier Reef. Um, I'll have to get to Australia one day. All right, so into these big policy law things I want to talk to you about. Two of them, DACA and public sector unions. Both Big news on both of these today, and I'll, I'll cover them in a, we'll do kind of a twofer here. We'll hit them both. Two, two birds, one segment of legal analysis. So the, uh, the first one is the, the Supreme Court, and they're saying, oh, look, the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has refused to hear the Trump administration challenge on DACA. All this means, and people are running with this, and they're like, oh, such a big deal. All this means is that the actual process that's in place, which would mandate that this now go up to the uh, Ninth Circuit, which is the, ninth, the super liberal left-wing circuit that gives all the terrible decisions, so we know how this is going to go, Right. We know. Some judge in California is going to say, DACA is a constitutional right. The founding fathers sat around and all they cared about was DACA. That's what the fight against the British was started on. The Brits were unwilling to adhere to DACA principles. Anyway, um, they're going to completely make up some crap and then it will go to the Supreme Court and then I think it will be reversed. I think the Trump administration will be correct. But the problem in the short term is that one, we know what the Ninth Circuit's going to do, right? That's a given. Um, there is no question that they're going to be in favor of, it doesn't matter what iteration or what uh, 
what specific judge you're going to get out there. You're, they're going to say, yay, DACA. And in the meantime, you had a circuit court, I mean, a uh, uh, just a federal judge, not an appeals court judge, but a, a federal judge who had already, yeah, circuit court judge, um, who had already decided that the Trump administration does not have in its discretion the right to undo a position of discretion taken by the Obama administration. Right? So just, just think about this for a second. If it is, you know, up to, uh, you know, if, if you, for example, are the landlord of a property, I'm going to try to put this in terms that we can all kind of, you know, I've had good landlords. I've had many more bad landlords. Unfortunate, man, landlords, uh, especially in New York, oh, brutal. But if you were a landlord for property and you had an agreement with a tenant that you were going to let them, um, you know, pay a, a 10% reduction in the market rate because, I don't know, you know, you, you feel... You feel bad for their aunt Ethel or something. Who knows? But if, if you were given that reduction and then somebody else came along and bought the property and they were a lawful owner of it and they said, you know what? I'm not going to honor that previous agreement anymore. I'm the new owner. It's now up to me. It's up to my discretion. You'd think that would be a pretty straightforward thing, right? The new owner says no. Or if the old owner lets you smoke in, in the house and now the new owner says no smoking in the house. I don't think a lot of people will be able to win a court case like, well, uh, the old owner said that I could, right? I mean, that's that's not how it works. Well, the, the current occupant of the White House says one thing about DACA, and a circuit court judge was like, no, because the Obama administration said something else. And I like what the Obama administration said. So I'm going to take away the Trump administration's ability to fully execute the, their Trump's authority, specifically as commander in chief and as uh, the, as the president, I'm going to take away his authority on this issue because you know I don't like it. It's a disgrace. I mean, the, legally that they're going to lose, but in the meantime, because the way our courts have been stacked in certain parts of the country with leftists who just rewrite the laws they see fit, you're you have this already circuit court judge who said, "Yep, Trump can't." undo what Obama did, even though it's Trump's right and prerogative to undo it if he wants to. And the Supreme Court didn't step ahead of the Ninth Circuit. So it's going to have to go to the Ninth Circuit. Now it'll probably happen in the spring. It's going to be delayed. And in the meantime, you know, they've stopped the uh, the Trump administration um, from winding down the uh, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. So this look, this is hashtag resistance at work here, my friend. So that's what that is. That's the one. We got one down. We got one more to go. Um, and we get into this this situation about public sector unions. And this, I know, this sounds a little. You're not super excited to hear me talk about public sector unions. I understand that. All right. I I think that uh, it's easy to view some of these cases about organizing and unions and everything is, you know, who, who, what, what's really the big deal. But this is a big deal. This is a big deal. Uh, but I can't tell you why until after the break. So you're going to have to stay with me and then I'll tell you why. That's, that is, the, that is the, the deal that we have on the table right now. Be right back. So public sector unions are possibly going to be in a tight spot here or a different spot when it comes to their, uh, their fees. 
um, when it comes to the money that they collect. Because here's what's going on here. you got a case the Supreme Court just heard. And it is Janice V. Afsme. Afsma. A-F-S-C-M-E. And here's what's going on. Uh, some of these public sector unions, they force you to pay membership dues even if you don't want to. Um, it's and it's a large, it's a large part of what funds them. And because of some previous Supreme Court decisions, this has been okay up to this point in time. But here's the here's the issue. Mark Janice, hence Janice v. Afsma, Afsmi. Uh, Mark Janice says, you know what? I don't want to do this. I don't want money going toward, I don't want my money going toward a public sector union that is going to be advocating against what I want. And here's, here's where this really comes into play. A public sector union is different than a private sector union because public sector unions are inherently inherently political in their actions. This is not like a private sector union where if you get a bunch of guys who all get together and you're going to be demanding certain wages for carpenters or uh, welders or, you know, you name it, plumbers, uh, then they create prevailing wage and that affects state and local law. And so you, you benefit from that. Now, people can argue whether that's fair either, that you could be forced to get this right to work states now. And this is a whole other very complicated Ball of wax, but with public sector unions, the only payer is the taxpayer. That's where they get their money, and their actions, therefore, their their efforts are effectively government lobbying, because they are trying to get more money for the government, and they're trying to change government policy. So there's no way you have a public sector union, whether it's teachers or you know, you know, municipal employees, whatever it may be, there's no way you have a public sector union that is not inherently engaged in political activity, not just economic activity or economic lobbying, because they're going to the government. They are they they are the government, right? They're involved in government activity. So it seems pretty straightforward. People get very upset about this, and it, they make it much more complicated than it should otherwise be. And here's why. Private private unions or private sector unions are way down in membership now, um, and there's a lot of right to work states that have popped up, and there's any number of, um, well, you point to some of the large unions, you realize that they're losing members, uh, and and the, the unions don't have the power they used to. Uh, public sector unions have actually gotten to be a much bigger part of the union pie, and as you may guess. They are financially pretty substantial uh, when it comes to donations to political elections. In the last cycle, 2016, I think I said close to 100 million. I overstated a little bit. It was more like 63 million, but that's a lot of money. 63 million dollars in the last cycle, 2016. Uh, 63 million dollars alone, and. The number has been ramping up, too. I see this. It was 63, and then the election before that, it was 53. Before that, 45. Before that, 26. Before that, 19. Before that, 17. You know, every two years, you're seeing jump, 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 big jumps in these uh, public sector unions and the money that they're giving for these different election cycles. 
And here's the other part of this that really matters. Now, I mean, the free speech part of it or not, I mean, that's it's going down on free speech grounds. That's where I think the problem is, because you are taking money from somebody and forcing them to subsidize what is inherently a a form of compulsory First Amendment activity, right? You're saying, I'm going to take your money and give it to this group that wants more government and, you know, is engaged in government, big government lobbying activities, et cetera. So there's that. But the part of this that gets the left so upset and the reason why they're going to, oh my gosh, I mean, almost as many people are going to die as a result of this change that I think the Supreme Court is going to visit upon public sector unions. Almost as many millions will die as died from the Republican tax cut, which I know left left Mad Max-like devastation in many parts of this country. Um, sorry about that, guys. I know that tax cut, that that $1,000 bonus you may have gotten from your company, you know, that that's just, it's the reason why all the houses around you have burned down and, the, and there's now just, you know, flame tornadoes everywhere and Mad Max, like I said. Uh, but the they, public sector unions, they give their money to Democrats. Ah, now we know why the media cares so much. This is a huge source of big money for Democrat candidates. In fact, 90%, 90% of public sector unions donations in the last political cycle went to Democrat candidates. So that's $60 million in cash that they're getting from people who are basically unfireable right? and, and work for the government. And... You see this self-licking ice cream cone of government employees who are trying to do everything they can to elect representatives who will make sure that government employees get the most money and the most benefits they possibly can. And that means Democrats. This is how the part this is how Democrats became the party of the state and the state became full of statists. As in people who work for the government tend to be, not everybody, but tend to be pro-government, right? Thinking that government solves problems, thinking that government does good things. And especially at the federal level, you've got a lot of this, a lot of that sentiment going on. But the Democrat Party is clearly the party that is most concerned with the expansion of the state, the expansion of the ranks of bureaucrats and government employees, as much as it possibly can, because it has become an important, uh, an important way of getting support for Democrat politicians. Right? This is now a source of considerable power, and the Supreme Court isn't going to eliminate it or eradicate it, but may put quite a dent in it because a lot of people are going to say, "No, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that." You know, maybe the folks who work for the government who aren't. Democrats who aren't statists will have a little more say in their affairs. Maybe we'll see that uh, the, the donation numbers will change, too. Andy McCarthy's joining us in a few minutes here to talk about the Democrat memo. Short version, Adam Schiff is a punk and he's not telling the truth. We have more. Welcome to Hour 3 of the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Thank you very much. Great to have you here. We've got Andy McCarthy who will be with us in just a few moments to go into a bit of a deep dive on the Democrat FISA memo, what he saw there, what I saw there. We'll we'll have an exchange on that. Uh, but first, I'll lighten it up for a few minutes. Let's get into a bit of a buck slap situation here. hi We're going to come up with a cooler, you know, I think we should do like a montage of, you know, the old kung fu movies where the, all it's like, you know, all the different, I didn't do a very good job. You know what I'm talking about, right? We should do something like that. 
really lean, lean into the buck slap. Because right now, a solo slap is not enough. It needs to be more than just a solitary a solitary slap. Um, but I had two things. These don't really go together other than just giving a buck slap to the media. The first is, you'll recall that guy, Michael Wolf, who wrote the book Fire and Fury. Which My favorite part of that whole story, by the way, was that Fire and Fury, a book about the Second World War and an aerial campaign. I think it was the bombing of Berlin, but I forget. Uh, but, you know, aerial combat in the Second World War that was published like many years ago went to the top of the New York Times bestseller list because of Fire and Fury, the other book. Uh, yes, the Amazon effect. Uh, but this guy wrote Fire and Fury, Michael Wolf, and he had an interview recently where he pulled one of the great media things that you'll see people do, which is when you get a question that you don't like, just do the whole... Well, I'm sorry, I, I can't, what's that, is that like, you got a question, he's trying to ask me, no, it's all fuzzy, right, it's fuzzy in me ear. He doesn't sound like that, but I just want to do that voice. Go ahead and play it. You said during a TV interview just last month that you are absolutely sure that Donald Trump is currently having an affair while president behind the back of the first lady. And I repeat, you said you were absolutely oh, oh, I, sure. Yeah, I can't. Just last week, however, you backflipped. I, I, and said, I quote, I do not know if the president is having an affair. Do you owe the president and the first lady an apology, Mr. Wolf? I, I can't hear you. I can't hear you. Just Hello? last Hello? month, you said you were absolutely sure that the president was having an affair. I'm, I'm not getting I'm not getting anything. I'm not. I'm, I'm You're not, not hearing me, Mr. Wolf. No, I'm not getting anything. No, I'm not getting it. No, we were no. hearing each other well just before. It's. So I'm not sad. getting. No. You're not hearing me, Mr. Wolf. Do you do you hear? I'm. I'm not. No, I'm just not. I'm not hearing, hearing anything. No. Mr. Wolf was no. hearing me before, uh-uh, but he's not sorry, hearing me. No. I'm not hearing anything. No, it looks like. All right, can we stop this for a second? Because this is. Let me tell you something. He's hearing him. You know how I know. He keeps waiting for him to stop saying, uh, excuse me, uh, slimy, shifty, grotesque character named Michael Wolf. Uh, can you answer the question, please? I'm, I'm not. He, he waits till he stops each time. If, if he couldn't hear him, he'd just be sitting there, guys, I got nothing. I, and there'd be crosstalk. Guys, I, I got nothing. I'm sorry. I can't, you know. Excuse me, um, excuse me, uh, pile of human refuse. You made uh, unsubstantiated and grotesque allegations against the president uh could you please tell us if you owe him a retraction an apology uh, i i i i don't know i i can't i don't know i can't hear um if he couldn't hear folks and i don't want to play that for you if if michael wolf couldn't hear guess what he wouldn't have waited till the question ended each time to say i can't hear you notice and in, 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 there are a couple of times there's a little crosstalk but he kept waiting you know this would be <laughs> this would be like me walking around saying, like, I'm going to hold my breath. I'm holding my breath. I'm holding it right now. And you're like, wait, but Buck, you're talking. How could you be holding your breath? Shut up. I'm holding my breath. So that he gets a buck slap for that. Yeah. Yeah. Come on, John. Slap him. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And then some guy who looks like the mean fraternity brother from an 80s movie. Uh, and that looks like that comes from somebody who looks like the nice fraternity brother from an 80s movie, namely me. But some guy named Peter Alexander at uh, the Today Show asked Ivanka the following question. Do you believe your father's accusers? I think it's a pretty inappropriate question to ask a daughter if she believes um, 
the accusers of her father when he is affirmatively stated that there's no truth to it? I don't think that's a question you would ask many other daughters. I believe my father. I know my father. So I, I think I have that right as a daughter um, to uh, believe my father. Ooh, that's actually a buck slap courtesy of Ivanka to the punk Peter Alexander. <laughs> Ivanka just buck slapped him. She buck slapped him. It was amazing. Because, by the way, completely true. Uh, show me where some NBC uh, glorified frat boy is asking Chelsea Clinton if her dad's a rapist on on TV while he's president or, or at any time. I just want to know. Hey, Chelsea Clinton, sit down. Talk to me for a second. Is your dad a rapist? That's not a question she's ever been asked. And I would know that's not a fair question to ask her. You know, that's not that's not a question. That's not a question that. uh should be posed to anybody in that situation. But they'll pose it to Ivanka because at NBC, they are in the tank with the never Trump, anti Trump hashtag resistance. So buck slaps are plenty there. And we're going to have Andy McCarthy joining in just a moment. Welcome back, everybody. So here we are, our three of the Buck Sexton show. And uh, I've been promising you that we would have the one and only Andy McCarthy to weigh in on the Dem memo that dropped over the weekend. It uh, It dropped with a bit of a of a whimper, in my opinion. It it did not exactly have the splash of the Republican memo, uh, but we should get into why and whether that is, in fact, even a fair assessment of it. We've got Andy with us now. He is a former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. He is also a senior writer at National Review and at the National Review Institute. Andy, thanks so much for joining. Buck, it's my pleasure. All right. Dem Memo, what were your thoughts? Well, I, you know, I think you're right that it landed with a whimper, although, I, you know, to be fair to uh, the, the... It was a Saturday, so we can start with that. Well, yeah, it was a Saturday, and it was also in the midst of this uh, hubbub over the uh, the shooting in Florida, which really hasn't died down, and that's, I think, taken a lot of the oxygen up. Um, but I also think that um, for their own reasons... They have uh, they have a motive to kind of soft pedal this because uh, despite everything that uh, Representative Schiff uh, is out there saying, his memo does concede the two main allegations in the majority memo that's known as the Nunez memo. Uh, namely, they did use the Steele dossier. And secondly, they didn't disclose to the court that the Steele dossier was a Hillary Clinton campaign product. So, you know, how much they want to have all the back and forth when those two major allegations have actually been confirmed, uh, I'm sure there's a lot of people who, who aren't loving that end of the argument. Andy, one part of it that really jumped out to me uh, was that there was a place at which they said the Steele dossier, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but it was the Steele dossier was later verified by blacked out line, blacked out line, et cetera, et cetera, about, you know, 20 blacked out lines in a row. I feel like right. that would be the thing that we really need to see and to know. Yeah, I agree with you about that for a few reasons. Number one, um, you know, the obvious, which uh, which is that, um, you know, if there really was probable cause, then we should see what the basis of it was. And obviously, they should preserve whatever they can 
uh, of, of methods and sources and sensitive intelligence secrets. And I understand they don't want to blow things that we know about Russia. Uh, but at the same th- at the same time, uh, you know, this is now enough of a thing where it, it certainly seems that the first memo, uh, the first FISA warrant at the very least was largely dependent on the dossier. Uh, so you would think that if there's better justification for it out there, we, that would be a good thing to know. And I guess the second thing, Buck, is that I don't really think I'm ready to take Adam Schiff's word that what he thinks is corroboration is what would satisfy me as corroboration, because he has an idea about corroboration based on what else is in his memo that's pretty skewed. Um, So I'd like to see it for myself and make up my own mind about whether it really corroborates the idea that that Page was an agent of a foreign power. And in one section, and we're talking about this, the Democrat response to the FISA abuse memo. This was the one that had been there's some back and forth over it in recent weeks. Um, And and Andy, before I actually get into the specifics of this one subsection, do we know the blacked out lines in this? Who's to blame for them, so to speak, or who is the final say? I mean, essentially, why were some of the lines about sources blacked out? Was it Republicans demanding them? Because I've seen a lot of Democrats saying that. Or is it the FBI? Or do we not know? Well, we know, Buck, that the Republican members of the committee voted to release Schiff's memo from the from the start. They wanted it out there. Um, So I don't think it's the Republicans on the committee who are doing this. Uh, then there was a lot of negotiation between, as I understand it, the FBI on behalf of the intelligence community, the Justice Department, the White House and Schiff and the Democrats on the committee trying to uh, come to accommodations that would allow Schiff to make the arguments that he wanted to make without exposing methods and sources of intelligence and, and important intelligence secrets. And I think, you know, Members of Congress can they, – they really do have immunity under the Constitution. They could go up on the, on the floor of the House and say whatever is in the redactions. They don't do that because if it would harm the country, obviously it would be very politically damaging for them to do that. So I think this is a matter of them accommodating or, or deferring to the judgment of the FBI in particular – that exposing what's blacked out would be bad for the country. All right. Now, this part of the the memo says the following. This is under FBI's counterintelligence investigation. In its October 2016 FISA application and subsequent renewals, DOJ accurately informed the FBI. uh, The FBI initiated its counterintelligence investigation on July 31st, 2016, after receiving information, and then it's blacked out. George Papadopoulos revealed, blacked out, that individuals linked to Russia who took interest in Papadopoulos as a Trump campaign foreign policy advisor informed him in late April 2016 that Russia, it's blacked out. Okay, that's, uh, you know, I'm putting that out there just because what do you make of this? It, It seems to me like this, it reads like what we already knew about Papadopoulos based on that news report that's out there that he was talking some stuff to some people, but... Is this the best they can do on Papadopoulos? Because to me, the, the inclusion of this guy in here makes the whole case seem kind of flimsy. Yeah, well, I think the case is flimsy. But let me, um, let me just 
and Buck, you probably have even more experience with this than I do, but um, let me say what I think is happening here in good faith. And that is, uh, you know, I remember years ago in the blind shake case, I had to try to get in some information about what the CIA was doing in Afghanistan, including the fact that we used Pakistan as kind of the cutout. And even though there had been books written about that, uh, and it was a well-known fact, I was not able or allowed to disclose it in, formally as a representative of the government because the, the intelligence community and our government never acknowledges who gives us information. So I think what's going on there is that even though everybody knows the Australians gave us that information and everybody knows what the information was because it's all right. This is this is the government pretending something is still not known that that everybody that that is considered common knowledge, which they which they do. Everybody, for those of you listening, the government will still say things are classified that are literally what you would see if you Googled it. But they still pretend that. Right. And, and I think that's done for good reason. That's done so that we can look Pakistan or Australia or anyone else in the eye and say, if you cooperate with us, we will always protect you and we will always keep it confidential, no matter who knows it. All right. So what is the single biggest part of the memo, Andy, that that did or the single biggest question that remains unanswered for you at this point? I, I think there are two questions, Buck. The first is, um, was there any other information besides the Steele dossier, which was completely uncorroborated, that made out the very demanding standard under FISA when you want to get a warrant on an American citizen that he was acting as an active, knowing agent of a foreign power whose clandestine activities violated federal criminal law? I'd like to know if there's anything else, because it sure looks like the Steele dossier was the only thing they had along those lines. And secondly, whenever the government gets a, an eavesdropping warrant, whether it's in <clears throat> FISA, national security stuff, or, or Title III criminal stuff, you always have to uh, demonstrate to the court that alternative uh, investigative techniques, that is, tactics other than surveillance, which is very intrusive, um, could not work to get you the information that you need. And the reason I think it's important, and this is something that really hasn't been addressed to this point, is that we now know that Page had a relationship with the FBI that went back to 2013. He was an informant for them in a case against Russian spies. They used his information in a complaint, and they interviewed him again as late as March of 2016. So he's someone who's been very available to them and that there's no reason to believe, at least based on what we know publicly, that he's ever been untruthful with them as, a, as an informant. So the question I'd have is, why get a surveillance warrant on him when, if you wanted to know whether he met with these two top Russian guys or not, you could bring him in and interview him and ask him? Yeah, the, the whole Carter Page component of this, Andy, strikes me as, as, such a, as such a stretch, the notion that this guy was at the heart of some international conspiracy and that therefore there had to be, as you said, very intrusive and, and very high-level surveillance techniques used against him. It seems much more likely to me at this point that some of the people who understand how this process works, and as you have pointed out, once you get somebody's comms, their communications, their previous right. stored stuff, stored email, stored text messages are fair game, too. 
They wanted to do some poking around. Carter Page had these previous fuzzy, weird Russia contacts, and it looks like it. It looks like a pretext, Andy. I know you can't say it was because we don't know yet, but to me, it looks like it was done as a pretext for surveillance. Yeah, and, and Buckle, and I, I want to be clear because I agree with that. Um, but I am not one of these people who says like I'm so like a fervently died in the wall Trump person that it would have been outrageous for the Obama administration to conduct this investigation. To the contrary, I've said if they had real evidence here of collusion of a corrupt nature between the campaign, the, the Trump campaign and the Russians, then it would have been irresponsible not to investigate that. And if it turns out that there are other bases for Carter Page to have been thought to be an agent of a foreign power and they had real evidence of that, I'm all for it. I'm, I'm like, you know, whatever, whoever we need to surveil, we should surveil. Yeah, I, I can sign and on to all that, too. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, well, I'm not saying that this I, I'm not one of these people who is who is saying this was an illegitimate thing from the get go. I'm somebody who has reluctantly been dragged to the point of saying something really bad went on here. And this is after months of telling people, you know, look, the FBI and the Justice Department don't do that kind of stuff. They don't go to a court with uncorroborated uh, hearsay from unidentified sources that comes from political sources. They go out and do independent investigation. And when they go to the FISA court, they make sure that what they've given the court is vetted. And they make every proper disclosure they can make because that's the Justice Department I know. And I've told people for months that what it looks like happened here couldn't happen here. All right. We'll have to see. We'll keep an eye on it. Uh, Andy McCarthy, everybody, read his latest at nationalreview.com. They've actually just updated the site. Looks great. Go check it out. Also follow Andy on Twitter. Uh, Mr. McCarthy, always appreciate you making the time, sir. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. Thanks so much, Buck. Dave, we're going to roll into a a quick break here. When we come back, I'm going to have, oh, some things to talk to you about. You're going to uh, to want to hear them because we have some some audio of them. Uh, Talk about diversity that, uh, oh, guess what? It went off the rails. That's coming up. Stay with me. You could be irritated by it. You could be irritated by the fact that women have to be the ones to gestate and lactate. You could be irritated by a lot of truths. But taking offense... Is a is a response that is rejection of reality. So, men and women are different on height. They're different on muscle mass. They're different on where fat is deposited on our bodies. Right? Our brains are also different. So there's some binaries. Security. This is this is what happens. Oh, did they shut off the volume? Can you hear? Can can everybody hear? <laughs> so so I, I gotta tell you guys, this is at, at at Portland State University, and it is a it was a forum, a college forum, and these things are great. Uh, a college forum where you have people who are supposed to discuss ideological diversity, the diversity of ideas, and this may not. Uh, come as a shock to you. There are people at Portland State University who do not want to hear about this, who have no interest whatsoever in hearing about things. And and even to the point where a and the, you've got a, a few different uh, individuals joining together here. You had uh, ex Google engineer James Damore. Um, he was part of this panel. 
and you had a few other uh, scholars, you know, people that are from Portland State University, and you had evolutionary uh, biologist Heather Haying there, uh, among others, So, and Peter, Peter Bogosian. Now, y- you just heard some pretty straightforward stuff about how men and women are biologically, physically different, different in terms of muscle mass, different in terms of fat deposits, different in terms of a whole bunch of things. And people in attendance weren't just content to go, ooh. They actually, I mean, I wish you could see the video, but I'm just playing the audio for you. They pulled the audio on the way out. Like, they pulled the plugs out of the speakers and threw a fit as they were leaving so that they forced they forced the, the panel to come to a stop. And then what you had is these panelists who had to stand up and just do it a cappella style. They decided to just keep going with the rest of, of their speech. Uh, but I, I don't want to stop it with just they pulled the plugs, literally pulled the plug on the speech, okay? And remember, men and women are biologically different. That gets people upset. That's, that's a microaggression. You're not allowed to say that. Every single one of you sitting, listening, standing, running, wherever you are across the country knows men and women are different. You're nodding your head like, yeah, of course, Buck. That has now become a politically incorrect thing to say. This has been going on for a few years now, but but it is now part of the leftist orthodoxy. It is dogma on the left that you are simply, fundamentally not allowed to claim that there are any differences of any kind between men and women rooted in biology. How one makes that argument, I don't... This is... This is the equivalent of saying, you know, an apple is a banana, to borrow from CNN. It's not, you know, I call this an apple, you call that an apple. No, no. An apple is a banana. It is the, it is forceful falsehood, right? It is so wrong that the purpose of it seems to be to force people to agree in the wrongness of it as a, as a form of intellectual submission. But they... They freaked out, uh, and no surprise, you know, they had a few of them, a bunch of, you know, blue-haired anarchists, and they they left, they pulled the plug, they did all this stuff, and then they continued to throw a bit of a fit outside, and I just want to share some of, these are the, these are the folks that are the future of this country. This is the, the campus elite, if you will, sharing their thoughts on a whole bunch of stuff when it comes to diversity. should not listen to fascism. It should not be tolerated in civil society. Nazis are not welcome in civil society. All right, well, we're going to raise our voices. The conversation's going to go on. There you go. This is the panel. All right. Let, let clear that sort of behavior is unacceptable in civilized societies. And if that person is a student... They, they should be given a warning, and if they do it again, they should be expelled from the university. Expelled from the university. That's where this should be now. I would note that it's not an overreach at all. That consequences for violating the central goal of a college campus should be something that colleges embrace. 
And to anyone who say, Bach, that's so harsh, you can't. No, they're they're creating a disturbance. They're just they're uh, at least destroying public property. And they are shutting down the right of others to speak. If you were to hand in somebody else's term paper, you could get expelled, right? Plagiarism, get expelled. It's not a it's not a crime, but it's still a violation of academic ethics. What could be a more clear violation of the ethics of the academy than trying to shut down a speech with people who are trying to engage in important ideas of the time in a respectful way that is the definition of discourse and dialogue? But this is what we are up against now. This is where the left has taken much of this country. You heard that guy talking about how this is fascism. This is fa- it, it, It's fascism when you have college professors, Heather Haying, Brett Weinstein, former Googler James Damore, and Peter Rogozian speaking to an audience about what diversity really is. That now has become fascism. It has become triggering, to borrow a term from the left. It triggers people. It forces their emotional outburst when somebody says that men and women are different. XX chromosome, XY chromosome. You know, I've heard people saying recently that on guns, on guns, falsehood is excused. And that is true. If you are on the left and you are anti-gun, you can say things that are untrue and it's okay. It's fine, as long as it serves the greater purpose. But in some ways, it's even worse when you talk about gender and gender identity issues, because it's not that falsehood is excused. They're not saying, oh, it doesn't matter if you say clip or magazine, ban the Second Amendment, right? Which, by the way, is a thing that I've seen and heard people saying recently. doesn't matter if you say clip or magazine. doesn't matter if you say auto or semi-auto. Ban all autos. But wait, autos are banned. Oh, you don't care about the children. With the gender identity issues, what you see is that falsehood is not excused. Falsehood is embraced. It's embraced. Yes, we are going to lie. Yes, we're going to tell you things that are not true. The movement rests on lies. The movement rests on the opposite of reality. And they just hope that the brainwashing and the political mobilization of the forces of the academy and the media and the Democrat Party and the American left will be enough. I will spend some time coming up in the weeks ahead when I can. I'll just go on some some buck digressions here about how central falsehood was to the Soviet system and to communism. And I'm not saying that we're about to have communism in this country, but it just philosophically it's important to understand that it wasn't it, it went from excuse making to the active embrace, in fact, the forced embraced, embracing falsehood at the end of a rifle or with a rifle pointed at you. That was the Soviet Union. Yeah. The, you know, the, this is the quota for potatoes. We hit the potato quota. Uh, no, you didn't, actually. People are starving. Well, this is the quota, actually. And yes, we did hit it or else you're going to be shot. Guess what? A lot of people say, OK. All the potatoes we need. That's what's going on ideologically on college campuses across the country. It's also reflected in the media, and it is soon to be reflected in our laws. In fact, I think 
already you can make the case that there are ways in which the left's mentality about gender identity has manifested itself in law. And while I can look at people screaming fascist because a couple of social scientists are saying men and women are different, people who literally have PhDs in the subject matter are trying to tell an audience that men and women are different, and you have people screaming, disrupting, acting like children. These are adults. These are people in their late 20s, from what I can see. And they're upset by this. It bothers them. They don't want to be told this. They have embraced some alternate reality. Uh, and it's not just on gender identity where this is the case. That's the problem. Once truth is a casualty, the casualty numbers just rise. Once it doesn't matter anymore what's true and what's false, uh, then anything becomes possible and anything becomes permissible. And this is one of the reasons why the left is so very, very dangerous. Um, the momentum of progressivism or leftis- leftism in this country always points toward, always results in tyranny. It can't help but do that. And sure, we can make fun of some shrieking, blue-haired, pseudo-hippie hipster types who don't think they should have to hear any bad things. But understand the political ideology they represent is actually quite dangerous and does need to be confronted on the battlefield of ideas. We're going to get into some roll call coming up. Stay with me. I want to tell you about some fun I had over the weekend. I'd like to share with you some of my adventures, and I'm going to tell you the truth about it as well, because I thought I was a pretty slick, pretty cool guy, you know, like I I can make things happen. I was uh, planning it for some time. Miss Molly and I were going to go to the metropolitan opera which is very very fancy you know it's a it's a fancy thing it's a once a year thing for me you know i save up i I take the piggy bank i break the piggy bank we go to the metropolitan opera and i get to go check out one of the most i don't know revered cultural institutions of new york city for for some look i i love it opera is enchanting it is pretty incredible it is also very long for those of you who have not been exposed to it. I don't know if you've ever been, but sometimes it can run in the neighborhood of three and a half hours-ish, maybe four, which is a long time. I mean, Braveheart is three hours plus, but it flies by in five minutes because it's the greatest movie of all time. But opera, you got to be into it. And you also want to know what's going on because you've got a whole bunch of people singing in a different language. So I make my plans with, I make my plans with Miss Molly to... Uh, to go to the opera and and she's all excited because I've told her she's cooler than I am and more in touch with pop culture but I've told her that that the opera we're going to see La Boheme is more or less the basis for the Broadway the hit Broadway musical Rent um, which is is true it's sort of loosely based on or loosely derived from but and so we were talking, and we had dinner beforehand, and we're all excited, and we're going. I'm going over the characters from La Boheme, and and sure enough, you know, we sit down, we we manage to get, we have great seats, and the opera is just wherever you are across the country, you should go to the opera. I'm telling, I'm telling you, don't knock it till you try. The opera is is pretty cool. I'm not saying go every weekend; that can be a lot, but it's a, a it's a real experience. And if you love music, I mean the the pit, the orchestra that they have is philharmonic quality, right? So the orchestra is amazing. The music's incredible. The set, the set design. Um, and if you want, if you're ever in New York City, you can actually go and get like standing room tickets for a lot of the operas, which, 
by the way, stay for half of it and you'll be plenty happy. You'll have been there for two hours. So, you know, stay for an hour and a half. And if you get standing room only in the back, I think those tickets are 25 or 30 bucks. Yeah, so it's 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 doable uh, in, a, in a less expensive way instead of a few hundred bucks, which is what it can run to go to sit in a chair and actually sit for the whole thing. Anyway, so I'm there with Miss Molly and I, I think I'm pretty cool. I think this is a this is a good date that I've set up. You know, I'm going to get some some buck points here, you know, for being a good guy, good boyfriend. And uh, she's she's all excited. She looks very, very pretty. You know, she's all dressed up. And I'm excited, too. And we've been talking about La Boheme, and I know some of the different you know, arias from La Boheme, and I'm all excited. Cause that's a very, it's the most popular opera of all time. It's very accessible, shorter, and, you know, if you're going to go see one, by the way, go see Marriage of Figaro, go see La Boheme, go see one of, one of the, the ten greats. You know, go, people love Madame Butterfly. I, I, I don't know. That one, for me, wasn't really getting it done. Anyway. I think it's a lot. The, the curtain goes up, and all of a sudden, I'm like, this isn't 1830s Paris. What's going on here? Like, I don't understand. There are tombs, like, out of ancient Egypt. There are dudes standing around with swords. There's, like, some kind of high priest with a scepter. I'm like, whoa, Le Marais district in Paris just got freaky. Like, this is not what I, you know, and I'm, Molly's looking at me like, what the heck is this? Because we're sitting there. Have you ever had the the thing where you walk into a movie, and and it's actually not the movie you think it is? And but for the first minute, you're like, well, I guess like I thought it was a movie about combat pilots, but maybe that movie starts out with like uh, you know a bunch of people, uh, you know, at a bar doing shots, playing rock and roll. I mean, you know, you know, you, you kind of convince yourself. So I I have that going on with this opera. I'm sitting there and I'm like, well, somehow. Maybe it's like a, a retro thing where it's La Boheme, but in 800 B.C., maybe. But no, no, I had actually booked tickets to the wrong opera. I had booked tickets to go see. And I didn't know this because the, the matinee was La Boheme, so I'm not crazy. I just assumed when I booked tickets for the later show, because I didn't read the fine print or the print, that I was going to go see La Boheme. And sure, it was Semiramida. Which is, some people I think would call it the last of the great Baroque operas. It is long, and it's one of those opera situations where it's like, Arsace is vying for the queen's hand, but Azur wants the queen's daughter's hand, but is pretending to want the queen's hand because Azur was part of getting rid of the king, but then Arsace is actually the son of the queen and the king and the uncle and the... And I'm sitting there, and I'm trying to show Miss Molly the program. I'm not trying to disturb anybody. I'm shining my little light on her for a second. I realize I can't do that. She's looking at me like, what the heck am I watching? This is like King Tut. And, I, you know, and, and look, we leaned into it, and we fortunately were able to catch ourselves at the break point. Um, uh, we were able to catch ourselves at the intermission. Break point. Gosh, sound like a savage. Uh, <laughs> the intermission. When I had a chocolate souffle. That's right. I felt bougie. I wanted to do it. So I had a chocolate souffle at intermission because they can do that sort of thing at the opera. Have it waiting for you even. I know. I know. I should just, I should punch myself. But we were able to catch up a little bit with the plot afterwards. And sure enough, you know, the, the, the dead king is avenged and the good guy beats the bad guy, but the girl dies, but the good guy. And opera plots, I mean, if you think that, like uh, some of those telenovelas can get complicated. Opera plots put all that stuff to shame, man. It was, it was a thing. So yeah, Semiramida, uh, based on the Voltaire 
uh, based on Voltaire, Voltaire's work, Semiramis, which was about a Babylonian uh, Babylonian succession struggle with uh, the queen, Semiramida. Uh, so, yeah, we were, in, we were rocking out in ancient Babylon Saturday night. Didn't know it. Thought we were going to be hanging out in 1830s Paris with a bunch of bohemians. But, you know, life's crazy, my friends. Things happen. You got to adapt. Got to be ready for it. So with that, I'll just tell you, go check out the opera. It's worth it at some point. So wherever you are, if you can, go do it. And I'm sorry I've skipped over uh, Roll Call, but I promise you we'll do it tomorrow and we'll hear from all of you. Until then, my friends, colleagues, patriots, fellow Freedom Hut dwellers, shields high.